This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Enneagram Plus Yoga, a podcast for the body, heart, and mind. We have with us today Liz Norell. Liz is a political science professor at Chattanooga State. She's also a yoga teacher and a life coach and an Enneagram too. I think you're really going to love this interview with Liz. Let's get to it. All right, Liz. Well, welcome to Enneagram Plus Yoga. We are so glad that you're here. So tell us about when you were introduced to the Enneagram and how it's changed your life as an Enneagram too. Sure. So I went to a retreat in December of 2016 with Sherry Fox and Mandy Roberts. So they have a a retreat organization called Soul Nourish Retreats. And Sherry is an Enneagram practitioner in Atlanta, or at least she was in Atlanta at the time she's since moved. And I didn't realize that the Enneagram was going to be part of that. I just thought it was like, let's go to the mountains of North Georgia for a weekend. Sounds good. But there was a workshop on the Enneagram in the afternoon on Saturday. And that was the first time that I had ever heard of it. I didn't really know what to think of it. Like I, I've always been really interested in introspection and self-knowledge and, and so, you know, things like the Myers-Briggs and other, you know, sort of personality frameworks I had been interested in, but this was new to me. And so, you know, I saw that I learned that was probably a two. I resonated with that really quickly. Um, but then I don't know, I just kind of kept hearing this word and started going to some Enneagram Atlanta train, like weekend workshops with Nan Henson. And I've learned so much from her and so much through those workshops. And that has really deepened my understanding of the Enneagram and how it relates to my life. Oh, wow. So I trained with Nan too. That's where I got my Enneagram certification. And and Linda Roberts as well was one of my teachers and they are fabulous. So a shout out to Enneagram Atlanta. You can do workshops. You can get your Enneagram certification there. Um, They're just wonderful. So I didn't realize that's where you had trained as well. So that's amazing. I haven't done the certification and I probably will at some point. I'm just kind of like waiting and hoping that it's going to go back to in person because I I had such a great experience going to those workshops in person. I remember the first one, I was kind of overwhelmed by all of the interaction with strangers, which is very, like I'm an introvert, that's exhausting, but I always leave so just with a deep sense of belonging and self. And so I... I really would love to do the certification if there's some aspects in person. Yeah, that'll be great when when they get back to that. So um, yeah, that's a neat connection to make. 
That is a neat connection. And I have a connection listening to you. So I signed up for an Enneagram um, training with Sherry Fox a few years back. And at the very last minute, something came up and I had to drop out. And I had such a sense of regret to actually travel to Chattanooga to hold it. Like, man, I wanted to be there. So (laughs) I'm so glad that you got to go and train with her. And that's that's such a wonderful way to get it started. So kudos to you. Thank you. Yes, it was a great introduction. Yeah. Well, speaking of certifications, I know you're a certified yoga teacher. And um, I also know that every yoga teacher kind of have the very first teaching experience story. (laughs) So tell me about yours. When you first started to teach, did you love it? How did it settle with you? How did it land? Tell us all about it. Well, I will say, let me back up and say the first time I went to a yoga class, it was an unmitigated disaster. It was at a 24-hour fitness in Dallas, Texas, and it was very much like a fitness class that had a veneer of yoga. And the only thing I can really remember from that experience was, I had no idea what to expect. I didn't know what yoga was, but I knew I didn't like it until we got to the Shavasana and I was like, okay. I could do this. And it was the only part of that class that I wanted to keep. But for some reason, I just kind of kept coming back to it. And by the time I finished my 200 hour YTT, I was definitely ready to teach. At that point, I had been teaching as a career for over nearly 15 years. And so, you know, teaching wasn't something that I was nervous about. A lot of people, I think, come out of yoga teacher training really worried about kind of like what it means to embody authority in a yoga classroom. That was never an issue for me. I was ready to go. And um, I pretty much loved it from the very beginning. Yes. Hmm. I love it. Are you Enneagram two wing three? No, I'm a, I'm a one wing. One wing. So is Christy. Yeah. How interesting. Just, just listen to you. I love that story. You know, we all have those, um, those stories and, and you're, you're still teaching, right? I'm, I'm doing less teaching now just because of COVID. And I don't really think the community of people that I tend to reach wants to do virtual yoga with me. Maybe I'm wrong at this point. I think they would probably take anything they could get, but, um, what I do now is usually like a, a one off like this week I'm doing a year of the tiger yoga yes. class for students and faculty and staff at chat state where I work um that's kind of themed around the new year um so I do kind of these one-off things but I'm not doing a regular yoga class right now although I'm ready to get back to that I'm just kind of waiting to feel safe yeah. to do so I know freaking COVID but- yeah <laughs> All right. So like a typical two, all three of your jobs, college professor, life coach, and yoga teacher are types of work where you get to offer help and advice to others. So what is the gift in this? And what is about what is hard about this as a two? Because that's our talk style, help and advice. I resonate with that a lot. But so there's some strengths to that. And maybe what's hard about that? Well, let me just start by saying that I love everything I do, and I feel really lucky that I have a life where all of the work I do brings me so much satisfaction and joy, and just, it's so affirming, and so 
you know, I know not everybody can say that. And I recognize every day how lucky I am to be in that position. Um, the work that I do is very much helping other people. And that's no surprise for it to you. Um, and the challenge for me is not letting that completely consume my identity. And I don't have good work boundaries at all, at all. And, you know, for me, it's really about reminding myself that the work I do, it's in service to others, but it's also in service to myself, that I'm getting something out of it and that I need to be really strategic about what I say yes to, to make sure that I'm doing it because I find it valuable in addition to being of service to others. Um, but, I, you know, I don't, I wouldn't want to be a different type. I love being a two. There's certainly some shadows to it. And I have seen all of those in my life and in my work. But I think the more I've come to know myself, the better I'm able to put some guardrails around some of those you know, less healthy tendencies of a two to just kind of give to your, give to the exhaustion of your own needs and self. I I'm love sure. the image of guardrails as, as a nice image for boundaries. And just to follow up on, you said boundaries are really difficult for you and learning what to say yes to. So how is the Enneagram helping you to work on the boundary piece? That's really hard for me as a two as well. So I relate to that. So maybe our listeners will too. Can you say how the Enneagram is helping you with that? Well, I, I, I think this, I don't know that I can say this is exactly because of the Enneagram, but because of my own work around understanding this impulse to say yes, to kind of ingratiate myself to others in the hopes that some appreciation will come back to me. I've understood that, I've come to understand that there are some things that fill me up and some things that deplete my energy. And the things that fill me up are things where I can see that my work was important and not just where I can see that I had something unique to bring. So if I didn't do it, it might not get done. And I really love, really love, and this is why perhaps Kat, you thought I was a wing three, but I just really love building community. And that is typical of a wing three, but I'm, I identify so much more with the wing one. Um, so, you know, I kind of created this three point test to yes, is what I call it. And it's, will it have an impact? If I don't do it, will someone else? And does it build community in some way? Mm -hmm. And if I can satisfy those three, then I'm really sure that I'm doing it for the right reasons. That doesn't mean that I say no to anything that doesn't meet all three of those, but I know that I'm doing it at the time, right? It's about sort of awareness and understanding, okay, this isn't something that I probably should, although I hate that word, be using my energy toward, but I want to for some reason that I'm going into it aware of, so. You know what I love about what you said, you know, we, we, we speak a lot about, you know, boundaries and making the right choices but we rarely speak about the practical tools on how to do that so I love how you spoke about the practicality okay here's what I know I need to do and here's the steps that I take 
to actually complete it. So thank you for sharing that. That's fantastic. You still sound a lot like a three wing. <laughs> I, know, I know. I one of my best friends is a two wing three. So I know what that looks like. <laughs> it's pure sense. And I can like appreciate that, but that is not me. I get I'm just playing. Yeah. Well, listen, we talk a lot about depletion on this podcast, and we also talk a lot about self-care. And I know self-care for all of us, it's sort of a buzzword, especially nowadays. It's important for everybody, but two sort of is in a different place in terms of self-care. So can you touch a little on that? What do you feel about it? What does that look like to you? What are your thoughts on that and practical step? What practically do you do to sort of counter the depletion as i said i don't have a lot of boundaries around my work especially now that i'm working from home a few days a week um i you know work kind of consumes most of my life and i love that but i also recognize that not every not everybody can do that because they have you know kids at home or you know other people to take care of i don't i don't i'm a stepmom the kids are teenagers and in their 20s, like they don't need me. I'm around to chat if they do. Um, so work really does take up a lot of my life. But but the key, I think, is that awareness piece. And it's why I love the Enneagram so much, because it gives me those tools to stop and ask myself, why are you doing this? What are you, what's the motivation behind this? But for me, self-care is really about that awareness piece. And it's about being really present in, in an embodied sense, but also in an emotional sense, especially when I'm stressed out or when someone's asking me to do something. And so self-care for me looks a lot like things that ground me, that um, make sure that I'm not letting my ego take over really. And so self-care for me right now looks like making sure I sleep eight hours a night. That's always been important to me, but it's really important now. Um, doing some kind of meditation practice or breathing awareness or move, you know, slow movement practice just so that I can like be in my body. And then I, I read a lot and I write as much as I can because those to me pull me out of this, you know, people pleasing space. And it's more about kind of being aware of what I'm thinking and kind of engaging internally. So those are, those are the things that look like self-care for me, especially right now. Um, you know, it's different for everybody, but I do think that for twos, we really do have to find a way to disconnect from other people. So let me tell you the story. My husband uh, is a one sorry, he's not a one, he's a nine. He yeah. is a classic nine. And he just like, he tells me all the time, I just want to be a net positive in your life. I don't need anything. I don't, you don't have to do anything for me. I just want to be more good than bad for you, which is like, so nine, right? Just like, yeah. don't be a hassle. But he <laughs> is a homebody. And especially since COVID started, he's here all the freaking time. And <laughs> as a, as a two, I, I have no peace if there's someone else in the house, because even if he's rooms away or upstairs, I'm thinking about like, is he hungry? What, you know, do I need to do some laundry? Like, you know, what does he need right now? 
And so early on in the pandemic, I'm like, Doug, you have to go to your office multiple times a week, even if it's just for an hour or two, because I, I have no rest. And he was like, I don't understand. I'm in the other room. Why does it matter? And I'm like, because it's not that you're asking something of me. It's that I'm asking what you might be asking of me. And I, I just can't stop. And so, you know, self-care there was just saying like, I need you to leave the space. Yeah. Asking for what you needed. Yeah. That's the best freaking story I've heard all day. That is really, <laughs> you still work out of the home? He, um, he started going to, cause he, we live in Montegol and he teaches at Sewanee. So his commute is like 10 minutes and he can sit in his old stone office with the door closed and he's fine. So I just send him there most work days in the summer. He would go and just kind of like putter around or whatever. Um, and then I go to my office in Chattanooga two or three times a week and you know, it, it used to be that that drive, because I was commuting to Chattanooga five days a week pre-COVID, that two hours a day when I was in the car, that was like absolutely necessary to my stability and sanity. And when COVID started, I didn't have that. And I was crawling the walls within days. Like I just, like the world, it feels really noisy when I don't have time when no one's asking or needing or might, might need something from me. Yeah. that is such wisdom to recognize it and with a sense of humor which I deeply appreciate <laughs> um so I was just thinking about what you said earlier about how your work consumes you and I that really connected with me because um I think as twos we've got the one and the three right next to us and they're really really hard workers and then our era of stress is the eight. And the eight is a really, really hard worker. And so the only place for us to go is that four. And four is, is that place where we stop, where like you said, you spend time writing, you spend time reading, you spend time sleeping, you start to rest and nurture yourself like a four knows how to do. You spend time probably thinking about existential thoughts like a four does. Like that is our only place of refuge as a two is to go to that four. And so when we become more like a four, we're practicing that self-care. And so I just wanted to say I that related to me, that idea of work consuming you. And I just think that's true for a lot of twos because so many of the if you think about the, you know, the air of stress and the wings, they do influence us. And then the two is a helper. So they're a hard worker anyways. And so we really do need to be more like that four. And so I just wanted to comment on that. Also wanted to highlight your website, LizNorrell.com. So if you guys look up Liz, she has um, some, some great blogs on there, some nice musings that you would really enjoy reading um but on your website one of the things i read that you talked about is um being on this earth that part of our longing is to be connected um and i think feeling connected is an essential part of why we are here and this deep knowing that we are here to connect in some really meaningful ways seems something that twos particularly tune into because we're relational and just the heart of who we are is we want to connect deeply 
could you communicate to our listeners about some of the ways that we all yearn to be connected? Yeah, and this is where, so I'm going to sound a lot like a college professor, and I apologize, uh, but just everything that I've learned in my my study of, of, of everything seems to always come back to connection, and I'm just kind of surrounded by the evidence that connection is vitally important for survival and, more importantly, for thriving. And so I remember my freshman year of college, I read this book in a, poli a political science class, which is what I now teach. Um, but I drifted away from political science for a solid decade before I came back. Um, but it's this book called Escape from Freedom. And it was written by this psychologist, Eric Fromm, trying to understand why the German people were so willing to go along with Hitler, very much in the, in the vein of the Stanley Milgram studies about compliance. Um, but Fromm, you know, he talks about how we have this deep need to be seen and accepted like we belong. And when we don't feel that, we'll do just, we'll give up just about anything to feel it because it's, it's so necessary. And then these um, psychologists, I think they're at Duke, they wrote this book just a couple of years ago called Survival of the Friendliest about how, you know, we have this paradigm that it's this you know, of natural selection as survival of the fittest and, you know, the person who's the strongest or the best is going to persevere. But their research suggests that at least in, in the context of humans, it's actually the people who can get along with others that survive the longest, right? Because they're cooperative and, you know, if they get hurt, someone's there to help them. And, you know, these, these social bonds, I just believe they're so, so deeply ingrained in us as humans that when we don't have them, really bad things happen. So, you know, I, I like many people probably are, are I'm fascinated by cults and conspiracy mm -hmm. theories. And to me, that's all just a search for belonging. It's a search for connection. Um, this filmmaker, Dia Khan, uh, she made a film. She, she's a, a British Muslim woman who interviewed white nationalists in the United States. And then mm -hmm. she interviewed people who had left Britain to join ISIS and then came back. And so she talked to them when they came back. And that film, by the way, you can watch it on YouTube for free. It's just called Jihad. But mm -hmm. she talks to them and they're like, I was an outcast my entire life. And ISIS was the first group that accepted me for who I am. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's just a great big red flag that there's a whole lot of people out there. Johan Hari's work is, you know, delves into this too. Um, his book, Lost Connections, traces, you know, anxiety and depression back to a loss of connection. Like, and again, I'm sorry, I sound like a college professor, but like all of these things just tell me that belonging and connection, mm -hmm. I think it's a crisis in America right now and around the world. And yeah. it, it helps me understand why we have political conflict, why we have a crisis in mental health, um, extremism, like all of these things, I think, trace back to belonging. And so, you know, I just think that one of the most important things that I can do as a two is see people for who they are without judgment and accept them and let them know that I care about them. And that's the kind of superpower of the two. And in that tiny little way, you know, make the world a little less fraught. Yeah. 
It is the superpower of the two to, because we are naturally encouragers to say, I, I see you, I hear you, I value you, you know, I, I, you belong, I affirm you. And yeah, that is what we all need. And I do wonder if certain Enneagram types might be more prone to cults because like the six longs for that sense of belonging, the four mm-hmm. feeling even any of us who are in the two, three, or four shame triad, you know, who just desperately want to feel seen, or even a nine who wants to create that sense of harmony and just kind of merge with whatever the consensus is. Like I could, I mean, not that that's what we're talking about today, but I could see like certain Enneagram types maybe being more prone mm-hmm. to following Hitler or whoever blindly. And that's, that's interesting too, out of what you just said. So yeah, thank you for that. I love hearing about the connection and, you know, don't you think we live in such an ironic time where, you know, because of social media, we're the most connected yet the most disconnected because connection is so misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. It is not that you are within click of a button to any, anybody in the world that's being seen and being Mm -hmm being listened to and that's and I, and I think the, the, the connection is not looked at this way right mm-hmm. now that's heartbreaking mm-hmm. you know and, and that's what com- I think confuses people because people say I'm, I'm connected I have mm-hmm. I have a million friends on Facebook and Instagram I mean what are you talking about right mm-hmm. and I think you know it, it's a really good point Kat and I I think of social media as a tool and, you know, so when I use my Facebook or Twitter, or I use Instagram less often, but I, when I'm there, I do feel connected because I've very carefully thought about how I want to use these tools. I think for many people, especially for like teenagers and, you know, young adults, social media becomes a performance as opposed to an authentic representation of who you are. And, you know, it's that, that difference that Brene Brown talks about between fitting in and belonging. Mm-hmm. I think if you can use your social media as a way to find people who do see you, then it can be a powerful tool of connection. But if instead you're trying to look like someone that you want people to connect with, that just ultimately feels hollow because it's not who you really are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. That is such a good point. Well, let me tell you um, about my next question. So I know that Enneagram is there to be used to for us to understand, have a better understanding for ourselves, but also one of the parts where I love about it is we get to understand others. And mm-hmm. You know, not everybody's to enter Enneagram because you are, but can you talk a little bit about how Enneagram has helped you not only understand yourself, but also navigate life better by understanding the ones that are closer to you, you know, people you live with, people you love, people you work with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has been really helpful. And I just want to say as a caveat that I know it's always fraught to try to type others. Mm-hmm. So I try not to like, I try to hold these assumptions lightly, 
but I want to talk about my relationship with my brother, who's six years younger than I am, and who will, I think, probably always be my favorite person on the planet. I just think he's brilliant and hilarious and so kind, but I'm pretty darn confident he's a five. And his manifestation of five has led him to basically cut off contact with the entire family for the last six or seven years. So I think I've talked to him twice in the last eight years. And both of those times were times where I basically just showed up on his doorstep and didn't tell him I was coming. And that's like not good. Okay. Just like, if you have a five in your life, this is a bad strategy. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I, I think that reading and trying to learn more about the five type and what that energy looks like has helped me have more compassion over why he makes the choices that he does Mm -hmm. and why someone who's a two who needs constant affirmation might not be like the easiest person to be around for him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think what would be, and, and it is, it is hurtful, but what could be just like debilitatingly painful for me, I can have some compassion for him and some understanding and it, you know, kind of lets some of the, the energy around that disappointment out. So that's been really helpful. Um, as I said, my husband is a nine. I, I haven't had him take the test, but I know for absolute certain that he is a nine, or at least he pretends to be a nine really well. Um, it has also helped me understand him so much better, so much better. And more importantly, because he is a nine who just wants everyone to be happy, it has helped me be more vocal about what I'm doing and why and what I need and why, so that he doesn't feel, you know, he, he will sometimes say like, you know, this situation is so stressful for you. I don't understand why you keep doing it. And I can, you know, frame it in some of the ways that I was talking about earlier about, you know, why I choose to give my energy to something that might be stressful in a way that can help him understand me better. Um, I don't know what my mom is. I have thoughts about what she might be. She disagrees with me. She took the test. I don't believe it, frankly, but it has also helped me understand our relationship better. I think she's an eight. She claims to be a two. So she must be a really unhealthy too, is the only thing that I can, I can hypothesize because <laughs> she's just like, she, she is gonna get it done no matter what. And that energy is just, anyway, it, it has helped me, you know, in many of my relationships cultivate a greater sense of understanding and appreciation really for the different gifts that people bring. Yeah. Thanks for sharing you know, about your, your husband and your mom, but particularly your brother. I think a lot of people will connect with that. I think we, you know, we are in this, this season where there's so many cutoffs in families and, and, and that's very painful, but, but using the Enneagram to understand maybe that person in our life who um, is hard for us to love or who we have to love from a distance or whatever the case may be. I think that that's, That's really helpful. So thank you for that. 
Hey guys, that was just part one with Liz Norrell, and we hope you'll join us next week for part two. She's got a lot more wonderful insights to share with us. Also check out her website, LizNorrell.com. Every episode of Enneagram plus yoga ends with a meditation, so stay tuned for that. start our meditation today in a seated position, any seated position that honors your body. So it might be easy seat, which is a cross-legged position, sitting on the earth or on your yoga mat, or it might be sitting in a chair, but just start to find the breath wherever you choose to sit, breathing in, breathing out. Inhale, peace. Exhale, letting go of something you're holding in the body. And then bringing one hand to your heart, maybe even both hands to your heart. And find that breath in and that breath out. And with our hands to our heart, we're in the heart section of the Enneagram. So let's start with the Enneagram 2, knowing that their work is self-care. And Parker Palmer once said that self-care is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer others. And anytime we can listen to our true self and give it the care it requires, we do not only for ourselves, but for the many others whose lives we touch. Take a deep breath in and a big breath out. The work of the three is going inward to find their feelings, to find rest, to know their true self. And so hear these words from Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard said, those who are always turned towards the outside, thinking happiness lies outside themselves, finally turn inward and discover that the source is within them. Find a breath in and a big breath out. And our Enneagram 4 is still in the heart triad. And often the work of the four is gratitude or equanimity. They're trying to find balance between their dark feelings and the joy of life. And when they find that, they find equanimity. The poet Rumi said, wrap gratitude around you like a cloak and it will feed every corner of your life. Now we're gonna move from the heart triad to the head center. And so just bring prayer hands to your forehead, maybe allowing your thumbs to just gently touch your third eye. So prayer hands to the forehead. Find a breath in. Find a breath out. 
So as we enter the thinking triad, we know the work of the fives is to get engaged more fully in life, to find community. And so I think about Desmond Tutu and the concept he talks about called Ubuntu. He said, Ubuntu is to say, my humanity is inextricably bound up in yours. We belong in a bundle of life. So Western thought tends to emphasize, I think, therefore I am, versus this African concept of I am because we are. Find a deep breath in and a big breath out. And remaining here in the head triad as we move to the six. And often the work of the six is to move from fear to courage to faith to trust. So hear these words from Nelson Mandela. I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. And then we're going to move to the seven, the Enneagram seven, and knowing that the work of the seven is to embrace their pain and their feelings. And so hear these words from William Shakespeare. Give sorrow words. The grief that does not speak whispers the distraught heart and bids it break. Find a breath in. Find a big breath out. And then invite your hands to come to your stomach and now we're moving to the gut triad. So palms touching your stomach. And we're gonna start with our Enneagram eights, knowing that part of their work is vulnerability. And so here, these words for our Enneagram eights. Staying vulnerable is a risk we have to take if we want to experience connection. And that's Brene Brown. Breath in, breath out. And now let's look to our Enneagram Nines. And the work of the Enneagram Nine is to fully be present for life, for their vocational needs, for maybe even what they want to eat for dinner just showing up for life. So Howard Thurman said, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go and do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And so find a breath in and a breath out. And again, we're still in the gut triad, so hands to our stomachs as we move to our Enneagram 1s. And 
And these are words for the Enneagram One who needs to embrace imperfection and let go of the need to be perfect. So these words are from Tara Brock, who said, on this sacred path of radical acceptance, rather than striving for perfection, we discover how to love ourselves into wholeness. Find a big breath in and a big breath out. Bringing prayer hands to your heart. Know that the light in me sees and honors the light in all nine numbers. Namaste, friends. Thank you.